Succeeding at anything in life takes work. I've been fortunate enough to lead a life filled with incredible opportunities and I've interacted with many of the most remarkable experts in their field. It is abundantly clear to me that anyone can be successful if they'll just take ownership of their personal greatness and if they'll work on improving every single day. You simply must do the work because if you don't grind, you don't shine. This episode was a really, really good one and fun for me to be able to dive in after the fact. I got a chance to talk to Kirk Gibson in Detroit, and he he had mentioned that you know he had a, a major shift in mindset and his approach to life after you know batting 225 in 1983, and then going to see a sports psychologist and turning his career around. And so I I actually was able to track down the sports psychologist and and talk with him and have been given some some great perspective on life and and goal setting and how it is we talk to ourselves and affirmations and everything. And it's really clear to see, you know, why Kirk has now changed his attitude and how that possibly affected his baseball career in the mid 80s. And and Kirk is perhaps responsible for the most memorable hit in baseball history, his home run off of Dennis Eckersley in the World Series is recounted and regaled as the best sports moment in in L.A. history, at least uh, according to a a poll that was taken towards the end of the millennium. And Kirk is just uh, an awesome competitor, world-class football player in his his college days, an outstanding baseball player, obviously, with the Tigers and the Dodgers. And uh, he was a manager, and now he works at Fox Sports Detroit, and he works at, at battling Parkinson's every single day, uh, both personally because he's diagnosed with it, but then also trying to find a cure. So uh, this episode focuses on his personal battle with, with Parky, as he calls it, and then also talks about just his competitiveness and his upbringing and, and his mindset, which is all just really positive, and, and I think that there's a lot to take away from it. I know that I enjoyed it, and I took away a lot. I hope you do too. Here is Kirk Gibson on the If You Don't Grind podcast. At any point in your life, you, you, Jeff, anybody that's listening to this or watching this, you ever felt invincible? Well, when I accomplish some of the things that I've accomplished over time and over years, we all have goals. Some of us don't set them purposely, and they're usually negative goals. But if you want to try and do something positively, you want to challenge yourself to accomplish something, not just yourself, but many others, collectively do things for the right reasons for each other. Um, then you understand that successes can be the most dangerous things that you're going to have to deal with in life. There was a time in my life I felt invincible, and I was reminded when I got diagnosed with Parkinson's that I'm not invincible. You can all be brought down to um, a different level, and it makes you respect what you have and makes you never give up on setting benchmarks because if you don't set them, they'll be set for you i.e. Parkinson's for me. I actually had it seven years looking back before I got diagnosed, before I gave in, and really understood what was going on in my body, my mind, and there's denial involved in it. But you don't really know a lot about it. So my cause is to promote collaboration, cooperation, teamwork, to make people aware and have them understand. If they have to deal with it, have a better understanding of what they're up against because it's always easier when you know what you're dealing with, whether it's football or baseball. You know, I'm up there hitting. I know what the guy throws. I've seen him what he's done in certain counts. Football, you know, how they disguise their defenses. I'm just thinking of moments in my life. And um, you want to have options available to yourself and to people in society. You, you want to have a positive impact on giving people 
tools to be productive. Now I got a tape, I'll play it for you. Or you can just let me watch me fumble through it. That's part of Parkinson's, by the way, fumbling through it. So, I mean, talk through it while you're while you're fumbling. Uh, you're giving me a cognitive exercise to do while I'm fumbling. It. You're welcome. It's just like, you know, why do I want, we were talking about being awake. Why do I like being awake? Because I, when I see people, I'm always constantly seeking out information, I guess you could say. And when you get information, you never know. I ran into a, a young man. He was 93 years old. He was uh, at a uh, restaurant bar in northern Michigan after my golf tournament, Kirk Gibson Foundation golf tournament. We ran a bus for the, the staunch supporters. They've been with us for five years, et cetera. They never give. And we walk, we stop in here. It's become a kind of a ritual. So I'm introduced to this 93-year-old young man. He says he's been a Tiger fan forever. Here's a guy who just told me. One trinket of wisdom. Every day is another opportunity to excel. And you shouldn't just sit, sit in a place and not be known. You need to get out and, and work and enjoy what you're doing and uh, communicate with people. And you think I'm getting out enough? I, I get out. I have a helper. I have a helper here. That's me. His son got someone to help him get out at 93 years old. There you go. He's got it figured out. So, you know, just me needlessly searching for information. Sometimes it's needless information, but you got to get out there. You got to want to do it. And so I get this and, uh, you know, I'm just trying to spread good news. I'm trying to get people upbeat about what's going on in their lives around them. We all have an opportunity in one fashion or another. Um, you know, I go to a, a business and there's a, a young man and his dad. They can see they're uncomfortable. And they're trying to figure out they own a, like a restaurant and they're trying to figure out they've booked in two huge groups and then they've got another group that wants to come in. One wants to bring their own caterers and the other one wants them to cook for them. And I can see they're struggling a little bit. So I just said, hey, you know, what's going on, guys? And they, they tell me the situation. So I said, hey, I, I play them that tape right there. And I said, you know, the good thing about that tape, number one, I point to the son. Who's that? That's your dad. You're really lucky to have your dad. Who could you possibly want to do this with other than your dad? I, my dad's no longer with us. You know, it just took him totally out of a negative position. How are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? To going into the situation in a different spot with an open mind, positive, understanding the strengths. You know, what would be a strength of your dad? Well, for certainly you're going to trust him. You know his strengths. You know his weaknesses. You know exactly what he's done so you can quantify and qualify what he's saying. And uh, it's just, it's kind of like fun what I do. And Parkinson's, having Parkinson's has gotten me out. I've actually been a semi-private person socially my whole life. Uh, you know, I was criticized early in my career for not being nice to autograph seekers, etc. I didn't understand the role. And um, so with Parkinson's, I've opened up quite a bit because I know how it felt to kind of hold that back and having thoughts in my mind, wondering I didn't really come out there with the information. When I did get diagnosed, I came right out and told everybody. I felt extremely better immediately. 
and I would encourage others, if they're feeling the same things that I felt, to do that as well. So you asked me one question. That was a long first answer. We covered a lot. I'll take it. Uh, how long did it take you to recognize that something was wrong and then to eventually seek the help to get diagnosed? What was the gap there in time? Do you remember? Well, I mean, the start of it would be in 2007. I got diagnosed in 2015. So eight years? Yeah. And... Um, how I noticed it was just that uh, I got fired in the end of 2014 as manager from the Arizona Diamondbacks. And then I came back to Fox Sports Detroit to do live television, to do the games. And I showed up for um, opening day at Comerica Park. And I felt like off. My wife said, are you excited? You're ready to go. And you know what? I really wasn't. And that's, I, that's not like me. I'm, you know, when I come on the scene, I'm, there's going to be some energy. We're, we're going to say it's game on. That's I have to do it for myself. I need to lift people up. I want to jolt them. I wanted to jump in the ice-cold 47-degree hot tub because I want to shock that system. Because if you do that, every, uh, let me say most, negative things that you have going on in your life, in your world, you want to rid them. And so they say, if you jump in that water and you stand there for a minute, it's a challenge. It's not comfortable. So you know, I always love being uncomfortable. You get comfortable being uncomfortable. I want to shake that. You know, you had a disagreement with your wife. Um, you know, you you got money problems. Um, you don't feel good. If you just sit in a corner, like I just played that tape, says you can't sit in a corner. If you just sit in a corner and you think about those things, there are basically reasons why you're going to fail. And you're pre-recording those. You're painting that picture. So, you know, I when I had Parkinson's, I came out. It was a good feeling. When I played football at Michigan State, you walk in the door. You got no shoulder pads on. You're cool. You're in college. It's a riot. You put the shoulder pads on. Your coaches say, kill. Mentally and physically kill these people. Dominate them, right? So you do that. And after every play, you've been there. You run a play, a practice play. 15 whistles blow. They come in. Hey, you know, you got to have better technique. First step off, get the toe out. 45 degrees. Got to get upfield. They're double teaming. You got to slow it, right? Yeah. 15 guys doing it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm in, I'm intense in that. Then I'm supposed to walk in, take my pads off, take a shower, and be the guy that walked in. And I had a real trouble with that. So when I got into that day, that opening day, I felt a little off. I didn't have that. And I recognize that, and I kind of struggled through the game, and I'm thinking, well, maybe I haven't been on in a while, you know. It had been since 2002, and this is 13 years. And after the game, we were doing the wrap-ups, and uh, they say, my producer says, okay, well, we'll throw Miggy to Rod, and then Mario, you uh, you know, you know, throw, I don't even remember who it was at the time. No, Verlander. You, Gibby, you take Verlander. So Rod did his, and they, he threw it over to me. And how about Justin Verlander? And I could not talk. And I was mumbling or whatever. And, you know, he's like, oh, let's try it again. Try it again. I mean, I just, I couldn't do it. I took my IFE out of my ear. I had such anxiety. I couldn't speak. And I called upon a friend in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who got me in to see a doctor. They got me in to see a neurologist and a movement specialist. And a day later, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And I was on my journey. And I know how it feels. It's embarrassing. There are a lot of things about the disease that are they're hard to explain. So I want to be a conduit for people to connect and to help them. And I think if I can be open and honest about some of my embarrassing things and tell them the things that I do to um, fight against the disease and to overcome the symptoms, I mean, there's no cure. We're all trying. We, you, you always want to find a cure. But how am I going to deal with it on the way? You know, keep charging ahead. 
how am I going to make progress? And, uh, you know, the Kirk Gibson Foundation for Parkinson's had some great events. We've probably raised about $3 million since 2015, and we're trying to get an endowment built up, and we're also spending money on finding a cure, research, and then also just programs. Like, I had no posture. I couldn't walk. My voice was really soft. I could not enunciate. I couldn't do a cognitive thing while I was moving. So you're thinking, geez, you know, this isn't, this is going to be hard. How am I going to survive? But you go and you realize, you know, you find a way, you have enough dopamine being produced in your brain to operate. Not as much as you once did, because that's what Parkinson's does is that uh, your neurons get attacked by a protein and, uh, called the alpha-synuclein chain, and it kills your neurons, so you produce less dopamine, so you have less coordination, and, um, you know, you just got to, you got to train yourself, you got to overcome it. Now, that's easy for me to say. I find that when I'm up and moving and challenging, accomplishing my goals, having a daily routine, helping others, that, and planning things that excite me, and I've recreated my bucket list, and I continue to go around and do the things that I like. I mean, there may be a couple of things that I didn't like that I going back for the sake of overcoming it. But um, that's that's what it's all about in my life right now. And unfortunately, most people don't come clean and tell the public that they have Parkinson's because within three years, most of them are out of the workforce. Now, that's bad enough. But then you have to have caregivers. We haven't talked at all about the people that got to take care of the people that got Parkinson's. Now, the caregivers got to quit their job and you're on government assistance and it's a, a shitty beast. When I see... Muhammad Ali and his battle with Parkinson's, uh, I very much associate you and your level of athletic excellence with his. You were an All-American football player, a professional baseball player of the highest order. Did you connect with Muhammad Ali over his battle with Parkinson's? Were you able to connect with him in, in his later years? I did along the way, but, you know, frankly, in his last years, when I saw him, he doesn't talk a lot. And he was he was overcome by the, the symptoms and the side effects from the drugs he was taking to deal with the symptoms. It's one of the things you, with Parkinson's, there's, you know, you get medicine. I've tried to take the approach to take the least amount of medicine I can so I don't have to deal with the side effects of the medicine. Um, you know, sometimes you people make the choice because they have no choice. You can't move if you don't, but you know, you, a lot of people, the, the gold standard is Cinemet. You take Cinemet and you develop, most develop a uh, side effect called dyskinesia, where I might be sitting here. That, that's just a side effect. You can't control it. Nobody wants to be sitting in public doing that. But if you have to do that to, that's all you got, what are you going to do? I mean, do I want to be locked up right here and not be able to talk, blink my eyes, eat, walk, get my phone? So, you know, it, it may come to that, but I'm uh, determined to, to fight as best I can and, you know, give most back that I can. I've had so many mentors and leaders that have told me about on the way up the chain to invincibility. You, it's not going to be, be worth it if you don't give back when you, when you can. And that's what it's all about. There's immense value in talking on your, your fight with Parkinson's. I think there's also a lot of value in, in speaking to how you got to be the type of athlete that you were. And so when you think back to your, your earliest days of achieving extraordinary success as a football player and then also as a baseball player, what do you point to in your upbringing and in your work ethic or characteristics that you found to be unique to yourself as an athlete as you become more familiar with more and more athletes? Like, What was it that you did overwhelmingly that you can point to that made yourself so dominant as an athlete? I don't think I was. I think I was an average player. I did some great things because that's who I saw myself as being. 
I actually learned to enjoy it at a young age about people making fun of me because I failed so miserably, only to get to take an 0 for 4 with four strikeouts and hit the game winner in the fifth, or to be able to go for 4 with three strikeouts and a foul out, take something out of the foul out. But we won, and I didn't get any hits. I, I, why did I feel like that? I think a lot of it had to be with was my upbringing. But, um, you know, I, I was just always afraid to fail. I in the end, you know, it's like I didn't give in. Like, you know, you box, you stun me. I think I'd be, uh, to give you an analogy, I'd be a really hard guy to knock down. But if you did knock me down, you'd have a hard time keeping me down and getting me up. kind of had a hard head. I had a lot of resilience. And, I, and the ability that I had was I had some game, game-changing traits, my speed, my physicality at my position, and, um, you know, just my, my personality, my determination. And an understanding, because when I was in elementary school, my dad was three square meals a day. We wanted to put an addition on our house, we built it. We Our septic field got um, plugged up, we dug it up, we scrubbed the tiles, we, we put that in. It was meal at breakfast, noon, and night, for sure. You committed to something, you never got out of it. I mean, you'd have to be dead not to go. My parents didn't want to hear about, you know, about being sick. You got drilled by a pitch, you went to first, you stole base, you scored the run. Uh, if you got a chance after you got hit to crush the second base or shortstop, you did that. It was always an answer to the challenge. You drilled me trying to hit, hit me. It hurt me a little bit, but, you know, game on. You're not making the rules now. You might get more back than you want to. I just had an ability, but I would eat breakfast, and I was required to run probably three-quarters to a mile to the elementary school. I ran home at lunch. I had lunch, and then if it was football season, we went on the backyard and we worked on football. We worked on handoffs, taking the ball right, how to never fumble, how to cut, how to spin move, how to get down low and deliver the flipper under the guy's chin. Basketball, shovel the snow off of the court. This is at noon. Now we're shooting hoops. Baseball, we had a field down in the end of the street, and uh, there was a river. I love the outdoors. So I'd be down there, I could hear my dad, Say, oh shit, he wants to do some baseball. And I'd come running home and he'd go, Let's, We're going to put a uh, pitching mound. Hell, I said, I, My arm stinks. Let's go build a mound. He got down there. So yeah, I, I'd say, I'm going to be Mickey Lolich today, you know. I, lo- I love Lolich because I was left handed and he was left handed. But then, you know, I'd get really irritated because, you know, my arm would get sore or whatever. He'd go, well, Let's go, let's go. He never wore shin guards. So I'd start chucking him down in the dirt <laughs> off his shins. How old he, were you? Jeez, I, I mean, that was fourth grade. Okay. I mean, it was young. I learned that one early, but, but see, he knew what was going on, but it, it didn't matter to him. You know, he kept his legs pretty tight together. He, he knew where I was headed for. But, you know, that's kind of how I was brought up. We did take two weeks off in August and went to a place called Sugar Island, which is northeast of uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. We played, we family time, we fished, we built fires. You know, my dad, and we'd get up really early He'd have a list of chores. You, know, you, you, you got to peel the potatoes and sweep the floors before we go fishing in the morning. Well, I wanted to go fishing, so you know I'd have that done. So it's very structured, always structured. And come to find out, you know, if you think about, and you, you can hear it today, and early in my parenthood, I was probably harder on my oldest son, but I got it along the way. What are you better off doing, correcting or praising? So you tell a guy to put his pillows on his bed. That's a pretty easy task, isn't it? But if you walk in and say, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time doing it. It's just think about how you affect people. Think about how you influence people as a friend, as a parent, 
as a coach, as a manager, as a leader. These are things that were just kind of tools that got put into my box in my upbringing to understand I had the power to reverse the situation. So bases loaded, two outs, I strike out. What am I going to do? Do I walk back and tell myself I stink, I suck, way to go, let your teammates down? Or do I say, that's not like me? I usually perform better in those situations and think about a time when I did. Talking individually, what if you strike out? You're going to beat yourself up. I might laugh at you a couple times, you know, because you're throwing your bat or whatever, which I did a lot. Then I might walk by and say, hey, that's not like you. Just little things like that. It's just little tricks to your craft. Makes you much more powerful in a positive way and puts you in position. We all want to succeed. We, we don't want to fail. It hurts. It hurts to fail, which is crazy that I even chose baseball and, and, and begin with because you, you fail seven out of ten times and supposedly you're good. Not in my book. So you were born with this resilience and this upbringing uh, where you almost maybe you hated to lose more than you loved to win. But at some point in your career, you transcended that fear-based mentality or that ultra hyper-focused work ethic and you started to being able to expand beyond yourself and start to recognize how your actions influence other people. Do you know what point in your career where you started to recognize that you could change the messaging and the outlook and the impact that you had on other people beyond yourself on the team? Absolutely, because in uh, 1983, I hit 227. Now, I went to Michigan State as a nobody. I was third team, honorable mention, Oakland County, where we sit right now. Third team, honorable mention, Curtis Griffin, Parade All-American, Michigan All-State from Birmingham, Brother Rice. Eugene Bird, Parade All-American, All-State, East St. Louis, Illinois. Then down at the bottom, I threw the other 20-some names, Kirk Gibson, honorable mention, third team, Oakland County. You got a chip on your shoulder. You remember those names and... Oh, yeah. But I went there as a nobody. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and I, it was comical. I recruited one of my buddies who used to run track, and he was a marathon guy. And I said, you know what? They don't know me. They don't know. I'm going to be the fastest guy in the field, best condition. And I'm going to pick some badass out, and I'm going to smoke him. Because I love contact. I mean, I came out of high school probably at six, six feet, two inches, 185 pounds. And I left six three, two thirty. I came in running a 4.65. I left it at 4.25. So my plan was to be well-conditioned, and I just smoked somebody that nobody messed with. And, and we got up there, and we ran these power trainings, and I just smoked everybody. And our starting quarterback, Charlie Baggett, said, Hey, Rook, you can want to slow down. We got eight of these to do. I said, I'm cool. I would be your flanker on opening day against Ohio State. This is a year after they beat Ohio State on an 88-yard run by Levi Jackson. And so... The next day we got out there, guess what he's telling me? He's telling me to slow down. Why do you think? You're showing us up. Yeah. And so they tried to form a roadblock, and I just busted through it. They were trying to punch me and stuff. I just said, bye. I mean, we were running one time around the football field. I was 50, 60 yards ahead of him. And I could hear him saying, that guy's nuts. No, I just want it. And then the guy, I, I ended up on scout team. You know what that is? I got the old card up there. I'm playing flanker. I got, you know, I'm on the right, flank right. And they run a sweep. What does the flanker do? Stock block? Crack back, crack back, okay. crack back block. Yeah. And then the, the strong safety is a guy named Tommy Graves. He's about 6'5". Had a big old link, you know, link on Mob Squad? Mm -hmm. Afro. He was spooky. I mean, the word, nobody's messed with Graves. He's about 235, and I'm about 185. And so I'm thinking, do I want this guy? But I held myself to it. I smoked him. People were in amazement. And that was cool. But then, you know, when I we went to run the play, the next play, 
they put the same play up. So I got, I'm down in my three-point stance, peeking out of the corner of my helmet, and Graves is double chin strapping, and he's going, come on. Now, this is when you realize whether you want it or you're going to let the beast deter you from your goal. Because I could have got right there and stumbled and fell down or whatever, or I could take him on. So I, I said, here we go, man. I hit him as hard as I could, and he hit me as hard as he could. I had a stinger. No, had the breath knocked out of me. I got up, ran right back to the huddle. And um, the next day, I was a starting flanker as a freshman, a third team. Honorable mention. Honorable mention, Oakland County. Now, where the story started, now I come out to baseball as the next Mickey Mantle. So those are two different worlds, weren't they? Yeah. 83, I hit 227 because I was the bonus baby, the savior, the Mickey Mantle. And frankly, I'd lost some of the positive mojo and energy over how to develop yourself into who you wanted to be, to be a Mickey Mantle type player. So I got there on opening day in 1983 in the Metrodome and Sparky called me in, Sparky Anderson, to tell me that I was going to be a platoon DH. I said, what? He said, I don't like the way you're headed. you got to make some adjustments. And if you don't, you can be home. I'll send you home to mommy. You can sit in her lap. And uh, I kind of went after him a little bit. And he ran out and said, you'll see who's in charge of this team. And he told me, he goes, when the cake throwers are throwing, you'll be on the bench learning from me. When the Hall of Famers are throwing, you'll be playing. So he said, I'm going to bring you to your knees. And that's what happened. So after 83, I hit 227. I hit probably 360, 380 in September to finish. I was below 200 a long time. And so the way I say is I looked at my compass. I thought I was going north. I looked at my compass, said straight south in my life. And I had a friend of mine who suggested I go see a guy. His name was Frank Bartonetti. And I was fighting the fans, the media, the, my team, my family. It was me against everybody. But I didn't see it. And everybody's saying, give me, man. They're telling you. I said, you know, I don't want to hear this. You know? So I got with Frankie. And I, he says, you know, tell me what's going on in your world. And I dumped it on him. It was like two straight hours I dumped it on him. And he looked at me and he said, that'll be easy to fix. I said, it will? He said, if you choose to. And see, it was just all on me. So... I went through the training, understood why I was doing things. And in 1984, we were world champions. So that's a pretty quick turnaround. That's where it all began. And I started to realize your initial question, okay? When did it all begin? When I failed in 83, hit 227, when got somebody that would open my mind. He was masterful at bringing me along and then getting me to open my eyes and understand. So many things happened. Like, yeah, I fight. I fought things and fought people. But you, know, you got to know when to fight, when not to fight. When to take what you say to me. Where, what do you do with it? Do I spit it out? Do I, do I store it? Do I take a trinket? Because in the end, you have to be your own expert, not the other guys, okay? Now, I allowed Frank to be my expert. I, I'll give you an example. You've been to a, re- a restaurant with 10 people at a table, right? When you go around the table, is there, you ever hear somebody go, oh, start over there. Yeah. Because they don't know what they want. Yeah. Then they go through nine different people, and it goes to them. And what does the guy say? He looks at the waiter, and he goes, you know, I'm stuck. Is the chicken or is the fish special better? And the guy goes, the fish is really good. And the guy says, I'll take the fish. Now, you've taken this. You made. You don't even know this guy. You've made him your expert. For all you know, the fish is spoiling, and they want to get rid of it tonight, right? But you've made him your expert. I only tell you that story because I want you to understand how easy it is to become your own expert if you choose to. We have choices to make, and I learned about the choices, and I try and help people understand the choices that they have and what the ramifications and the, the gift you, you have to give. 
I think we had a delicious ten-person dinner with you, me, Todd, Dick, and Jeff Bile. So I uh, and our and our spouses. So if I remember correctly, we we did have a, a group of ten. I don't remember how the ordering took place. All I know is Bile took about the first fifteen minutes to order. That can happen time to time. <laughs> uh, he was thinking of us all. See, you see, he was going into gutter. You never know. So. How does all of that contextualize the World Series 1988 home run for me? It's been broken down and analyzed, but if you could talk to me about it from a mindset perspective, from being positive, from engaging other people, because there are a lot of people. There's Mel Didier, there's Tommy Lasorda, they're your teammates. How did people other than yourself contribute and collaborate to help make that an iconic moment, voted the best sports moment in L.A. history in 1995? Certainly, I saw a lot of people doing the double fist yeah. pump, which is awesome. Well, what do they have to do with it? Everything, because without them, you, I'm not going to do it. Uh, you know, it was four nothing, four one, four two, four three. You know, the whole ride up. You, I mean, if I would have tried to do everything myself, and then all of a sudden stood up there against Eckersley and said, "You know, I'm going to do this," it's not going to happen. The thing about situations in your life, and of all the things that I'm going to say, this is very powerful. I want people to try. Maybe some of this is deep. This is going to be deep, but I'll try and walk you through it. People ask, have asked you or asked anybody listening, who did you dream to be as a child? You may say Ted Williams. You may say Barack Obama. You may say Jeff Bile. Okay? But we've all dreamed, whether we even designed or not designed, okay? So a dream itself is good. It's a good start, but it's not the powerful point okay so I came in one day opening day and I was in right field in Tiger Stadium I was a center fielder all spring training so when it sparked you I said you screwed the lineup up he goes what are you talking about he goes I said you got me in right field you can get him go get him big boy so I went out there and it was pretty overwhelming but little did I know when the game started it was a clear day in April a little chilly and the first ball came to right field, went up. I was camped underneath it, and then it went right in the sun and hit me in the side of the head. I picked it up, threw a hand grenade in there to second base, and there was a little spattering of booze. But later in the game, another one came. There was an overhang in upper deck and right field. I lost it. That went in the sun. That hit me in the shoulder. Now, more booze, okay? Needless to say, I struggled with balls in the sun that, that year pretty much, okay? But I had a mentor come and save me, and that was Al Kaline, okay? Because he taught me how to get the bright glasses, how to use my club to shade it, how to use my feet to get around it, and, uh, you know, how to deal with it. Now I enter Frank Bartonetti, so I have this negative picture of playing. I walked out to right field at Tiger Stadium in that year after that game. I saw that sun. I was I did not have a good picture, okay? But after getting with Frank and Al, getting the right equipment, and Frank just said, why don't you dream of making a great catch? So you dream of that making a great catch. What it, what it, what is the most important thing of that part? And and to say you make the catch. So when you think about making the catch, what's the most important part about the memory? It's not the memory. It's how you felt. So whenever you fail or whenever you do something good, you can remember. Tell me a moment, a really cool moment in your life. Just what happened? I ran for 300-plus yards in a high school game. How did that feel? Uh, it was very satisfying and gratifying. I mean, did you really feel good? You, you probably felt good. Your parents were there. Your teammates really felt like it. But that's a powerful point because when we talk about being our own expert, sometimes we have to change our picture. I had a bad sunball picture. 
I had to change that picture. So I had to write an affirmation, which is something that you write that you're going to change as if it's already happened. So I would say things like this in the morning before I got up out of bed and at night. I love playing right field on a sunny April day in Tiger Stadium because, first of all, the sun is warm on that white Tiger uniform, and the it's bright on the crowd backdrop. It's so vibrant, the colors. So just think about the different ways you, you can say that. So I wrote, I'm thinking, the sun hits me, I'm warm. I'm no longer scared, I'm warm. I'm seeing the crowd, I'm seeing bright bright yellows, I'm seeing bright whites. It's, it's vibrant, it's alive, the moment's alive. Now I catch the ball, I feel good. So that that's what you have to do. So getting back to the accuracy thing and all that, I'd been building that moment up and I hit a home run in 84 off Gossage. He struck me out in my first at bat, struck me out nine out of the first 15 at bats. I'd been working in my head the whole time to feel what it's going to feel like to run around the bases in a World Series after taking him upstairs. And I did that. So when I got to Eckersley, it was the same thing. So when you want to create moments or you want to be a certain player, or you want to make certain changes, you have to set your goal, write an affirmation as if it's already happened, and you got to have a vividness to it. So the formula is I times V equals our imagery times vividness equals reality. How vividly you can imagine something determines how real it becomes. Does that, does that make sense to you? It makes complete so, sense. when you say something and you're changing a picture of a situation that you're going to come into, now in 84 in the World Series, Gossage's uh, manager told him to walk me. He said no. Was it Dick Williams? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm standing in the on-deck circle or in the batter's box when Williams comes out. I know why, but I can't be saying, oh, he struck me out of nine. So I'm looking at Sparky going five, ten bucks. I'm looking in the upper deck because I've already created this moment. I've already vividly felt it. It's crazy. Just let me tell you this. It's exhausting. I've done that hundreds of thousands of times in my life, maybe millions. Doesn't always happen, but you got to be strong and you got to keep it going because when it does happen, I believe going into those moments when I went to Eckersley, I believe that I put myself in a position to be comfortable in that situation and to have, I could vividly feel what it was going to be like. And you have to be able to adjust because here I was a guy who played every day for my teammates, for the fans, and then it was taken away from me. We went to the prom, we were going to the promise land, it was taken away. So I had one game, eight innings, to figure it out. And, um, you know, I, I told myself that, you know, I had two bad legs, I could barely walk, and had injections in both, both legs. And I told myself sitting in that training room, um, when I walk out and they see me, I'll hear a noise and I won't hurt anymore. When I'm rounding those bases, I'll be flying around the bases. And my parents, um, my dad, that year in 83, going back to 83, people were all over me. I was a scientist. I was arrogant, okay? And my dad was getting some scraps. My mom was trying to defend me. I said, hey, don't do that. We'll have our day. I'll grow up and... We'll do it the right way. When I was on my second or third step running down that baseline, my imagery, my vividness feeling was that we that moment had finally come. So that's what powered me. You just go up there, and then you just you just let it unfold. You put yourself in a position to, to succeed. You believe you're going to succeed. You know how it's going to feel already. And when that ball went out, it made no sense at all. To this day, when you watch it, it made no sense at all, except I had a little something in the hands at the end. And then when I got down that line, I was thinking of my mom and dad. There you go. And I was thinking of blowing Kirk Babakwa kisses when I was going around the bases 
uh, against Gossage because he 84. he did it he did yeah. it he did it to us okay uh-huh. so I mean the information's there for you to use you know you got to seek you got to seek it out in the end I've always been a student of whatever I've done and I've had people push me like my childhood I couldn't grow up in today I, I wouldn't it, it wouldn't I don't even think it would be legal I think my dad we had some battles I loved it he would uh, we'd get some we'd challenge each other whatever. And we, you know, we get wrestling around and somebody might pop somebody. It'd break into a pretty good one, you know. One time he threw me on the couch and he come after me. I just, I was kind of back there on my back. And he come to playfully get on top of me. And I took my heel and jammed it in his chest. He went flying. And I thought, oh boy. And um, I ran out the front door. It was about five o'clock. My dad opened the door very calmly and said, see you at dinner. So I just went back and got over with my sister. She's five years older than me. I had two sisters, got along with one good, and my other one, she used to challenge me all the time. We'd be over there with my friends. We'd get mad. She'd say, go get the boxing gloves. So she'd beat my butt in front of all my friends. Uh, these are all things I don't think you would promote, but it's what worked for me. And, uh, you know, we've analyzed the good parts of those moments, and I think to, in today's world we found a different and maybe a better way that's more conducive towards a saner society, I guess, in um let us be productive but reasonable along the way. I resonate and connect with your story of a little bit more physicality in youth growing up, so I, I enjoyed and appreciated that component. But I, I want to get back to the I plus V equals R just as a final question and kind of bringing this thing full circle. Do you have an image, a vivid one in your mind, about what the reality looks like for your battle against Parkinson's just to, you know, and everyone's battle against it? Is it something that you think about regularly and is vividly in your mind about what that, that final solution looks like? Well, my my son Cam just said, we're going to get a good three hours sleeping and get going. And they kind of make fun of me about it. But if I'm not on the move, that's going to take me to the answer to, to to what the reality of it is, okay? I don't want to be the guy to find the cure. It's going to sound kind of morbid, but I want to be remembered that I had something to do with promoting and uh, motivating the person who does find it. Does that make sense? It does. I don't want to be standing there, but I want them. I want to be mentioned 20 years after I'm dead or a year after I'm dead or a day after I'm dead. I just want to be mentioned as the guy that gave it all and put it on the line. For the next generation to close it down you and the kirk gibson foundation are, are doing just that so i appreciate it thank you kirk thank you yeah well gibby as they call him was uh, an awesome interview and a lot of fun to do he dominated me in ping pong prior to doing the interview so i don't know if he uh, especially enjoyed that but you know, every single day he's either playing pool playing ping pong uh, golfing he is uh you know battling parky the Parkinson's disease, uh, Parky, as he calls it, uh, just relentlessly. And uh, no surprise for someone with his vigor and his competitiveness and, and enthusiasm and zeal and zest for life. So um, really appreciated Kirk for taking his time and sharing some of his insights and, and really just uh, sharing with others uh, how he has recognized his personal greatness and how he works towards achieving it every single day. So that'll do it for this episode. Next episode will be the CEO of Ford, Jim Hackett. Uh, I interviewed Kirk Gibson, Jim Hackett, and Mita Singh uh, all in the same day uh, on a trip to Michigan. So really productive and you know tough, tough to do, but really a lot of fun. So remember, if you don't grind, you don't shine. Thank you for listening to If You Don't Grind. For more info, content, or to connect with JT, go to ifyoudontgrind.com.